So for those of you who've been sort of following along, tracking with us through Colossians, it might be kind of strange to hear this clip about work is worship. You might be wondering why we've skipped two verses. In the book of Colossians, we, we skipped the part about children obeying parents and parents, especially fathers, encouraging children in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Uh, I'm cheating a little uh, by shelving this till uh, around Father's Day when I got a little something-something planned around that time. So I'm, I'm going to shelve that for a little bit. Instead, we're skipping ahead in Colossians 3 to living Christ where we work. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 22 all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. And as you do that, I'm going to tell you how we're going to work this morning, how we're going to work at getting a handle on Jesus and work. First, we have an obvious obstacle. We've got to clear. Then we're going to lay some groundwork all right, to get a kind of a biblical understanding of work. We'll try to get through that. Which will then spring us into unpacking some of the practical stuff that Paul gives us here for work. So read with me if you would. Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For uh, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Know that you also have a master in heaven. God's word. So first, the obstacle that is obvious here that we've got to clear, the obvious obstacle is the S word. Right? Uh, there are certain words one wants to refrain from when conveying any point, especially public speaking, media, parties. What are some? Like four-letter words? Right? You don't want to drop one of those. Mean jerk. Those, we you know, ones like that. Uh, also, the uh, Hitler-Nazi combo. That's bad. Probably a final one, though, is here. Slave. The S word. Comparing things to slavery is something you just kind of want to avoid. Uh, yet here we are, right, all set to talk about work this morning. Something that's very important. It much of our lives, and the Bible goes and drops the S-bomb, slavery. It's forcing us to ask the question, can one really make a comparison of slavery, as Paul mentions it here, to modern day work? And I think the answer is yes. But i got some explaining to do, right, to make that happen. First of all, in the Bible, uh, slavery, even in Scripture we see, is not... God-initiated, but man-made. And while the Bible in no place commends nor approves slavery, it does regulate its practice for the sake of human dignity, for the sake of the human person. But then why does it, in the New Testament in particular, not make an outright condemnation of slavery? Why does it just go all out and just do that? I think part of the answer lies 
and the nature of slavery two millennia ago and two centuries ago. Because they were very different. I'll get to that more in a moment. But you've got to understand here in the Bible, the main concern of the New Testament writers was the building of God's church. Uh, disseminating, giving out the good news that Jesus died in our place so that by trusting Him, people might have everlasting life. When you consider both the promise of Jesus' return, which many thought would be in their lifetime, and that their lifetimes were expected to be under half of ours, we can better grasp the first priority of eternal life through Christ. You get that? Having said that, Paul does personally personally write a, a brother in Christ encouraging him to receive back a runaway slave as a free man. As he comes back, receive him as a free person, even though he ran away. And the Bible dedicates an entire book to this called Philemon. It's like Paul can, can write to this established Christian probably because this Christian has a firm grasp on the already justice that comes in the Gospel. And once you get the Gospel and that God is just through Christ, you can start to apply that to other areas of life. But getting off track a little. So that's the Bible. But back then also there was a qualitative difference in slavery two millennia ago versus slavery as we think of it today, which is generally slavery, colonial British, American slavery of about two centuries ago. In first century Rome, there wasn't a vast difference between a slave and your average Joe or Josephine. People were not necessarily distinguishable based on race, speech, clothing, and these sorts of things. They're not segregated from the rest of society based on their status as a slave. Uh, Many places Paul visited, there would have been one-third of the population as slaves. What happened was that they typically had gotten into debt, sold himself into slavery, and you know the master would then pay off your debt, and then you would typically work it off while often still getting a modest wage. Not to mention there were very few slaves for life. So you work it off, you're done, not a slave anymore. In fact, one commentator I read even makes the argument that this kind of slavery was preferable to your blue-collar, free person simply because of the job security it provided. You get the idea. It's just not the same kind of connotation. So, yes, we can talk about work with this passage. And so having cleared the way to apply this passage to work, let's, let's lay a little groundwork for a biblical understanding of work by asking the question, are you and I made to work? Or are you and I made to rest? Are we ultimately made to work? Are we ultimately made to rest? And the answer is yes. You didn't think that was a possible answer, but it is. I'll tell you why. God worked, and then He rested, but mostly He worked. Genesis 2, verse 2 says this, On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done and rested on the seventh day from all His works. We had six days of work, seventh He rests. According to Genesis 1.27, human beings were made in the image of this same God, 
and, and being made in His image, we are designed then to imitate who He is in sort of a miniature way, imitate who He is. And so, man also worked. Before sin enters the world, man works. Genesis 2, 7-9. through Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. And He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then skip down to verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it, to keep it. Man's first job. Before the fall. So you cannot blame sin for your job. <laughs> Alright, you just can't do it. And then, friends, this is a radical departure. This is important to understand. This is a radical departure from the understanding of work across the world at this time, the known world in the ancient Near East. Then it was a work was absolutely a means to an end, often as it is now. Right? It very, seen very negatively. In fact, most of the accounts we have in the ancient Near East envision work itself, work itself as a curse. One uh, prominent Babylonian story tells of how gods were basically tired of work. And so that's why they created human beings. That's the whole reason they created human beings, to do the work. That's that's a less than encouraging story, isn't it? But we read that, it's interesting, the difference, isn't there, between holy scriptures devised by humans that first first consider human experience and then interpret it and try to fit it back into who the gods are. It's a big difference between that and these scriptures we have written by God. Not trying to take human experience and try to fit it back into how God works. Scriptures here written by God where God works and it is very good. And so man also works and it's supposed to be good. Something happens along the way. Man and woman stop trusting God. They place their trust elsewhere. And they turn away. And God, being a just God, fully just, He's got to punish them. So He puts a curse on them and all their offspring. That offspring, by the way, includes, that's us. <laughs> Part of this curse is upon our work. Genesis three seventeen through 19 says this. God is talking to man listen to what he says. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. I'm not going to get into that. All right, that's another sermon. <laughs> Before you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that ground shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. You see that? Suddenly his work, remember his work is this garden. Sweat, pain, thorns, thistles. Work is cursed. 
Notice though, it never says there that we're not supposed to work. We're still called to work, but it's no longer fully enjoyable, fully good, fully restful. So we're told this in terms of being made to work, but it doesn't just stop there. In fact, those who trust Jesus will always work. In Isaiah 65, 21 and 22, where Isaiah here is speaking about the new heavens and the new earth, delivering what God wants to say about these new heavens and the new earth that will come at the end of time. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So there's still work going on. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. What we know from the curse is that you don't always get what you put into work. Right? Sometimes people take credit for your work. Sometimes people steal your work. Sometimes you don't get the kind of compensation you feel your work deserves. Well, what's going to happen is we're going to continue to work with Jesus in heaven, but none of those things will be true. We will fully enjoy the fruit of our labors. You know, of course, I, I realized this week the only problem for me about this is that I'm going to be out of a job. All right, when it comes to heaven, I'm going to be out of a job. I realized it this week because, you know, there's going to be no more sin. And our true senior pastor, Jesus, will be in our midst, right? Fully in our midst. So I'm hoping I can, I'm hoping I can intern with one of you guys in heaven. <laughs> I can intern with one of you. I could shadow you, maybe get your coffee, because my job will be done. Other jobs will continue on, but I'll have to be an intern. So uh, Revelation 14.13 puts it this way. And this is interesting. Notice the contrast with Isaiah. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. This is the end of times again. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They are blessed indeed, for they will rest from all their toils and their trials. Interesting, right? How do we make sense of this contrast? On the one hand, we're going to keep working, but here it says we're going to rest from our toils and trials. I think the way we reconcile this is there is a kind of rest one finds in perfect work. I hope you've experienced a taste of this. Perhaps it's doing yard work or working with your hands. Maybe it's helping others. Maybe it's just getting in a groove with your job, but getting a taste of that perfect rest you find with perfect work. There are equally times when you try to relax or you try to rest, but your heart is restless. Right? You've had those feelings before. You try to relax, but your mind is going 100 miles per hour. That's how it is still on this earth, that there's this imbalance. You try to rest, but you're working. We were made to work. And in Christ, that work becomes increasingly more restful. Increasingly more restful. This is so important too because many of us are of the mindset that work ends when I leave the building. When I hit that pavement, when I hit that parking lot, work is over. But in God's economy, clocking out of your job does not mean clocking out of work. For some... You know, time away from your job, you feel like it's, it's meant solely for comfort, for, for self 
indulges, doing what you want, but that just does not line up with Scripture. And not only that, but knowing we are made to work reveals that there is another work to be done. There is other work to be done, which is of equal, if not greater, importance. In fact, what's Colossians here provides a pretty good template for work. It's pretty cool. It's, it talks about church, chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. It talks about marriage, which many of us would acknowledge as work. If you're married, you, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Kids, chapter 3, 20 through 21. Your job, which we're talking about today, sharing the gospel as you go, the hard work of learning and and stepping out to share the gospel. And we're going to look at it chapter four. All of this is work. And what's so cool is the Colossians is chronicling it all. I started that list with church. That might be the one you're like, what? Church is work? But it is, in many ways. I mean, I I know it's work for people other than me who are employed by the church. For some, it's work. It's work to shave, color coordinate, and get here relatively on time. That's work for you. All right? for, for others, it's work to be vulnerable with the church, other people in the church. It, it's work to maybe get, up, get beat up a little bit by Scripture, thankfully to be healed also by the same Word of God, but it kind of beats you up a little bit. It's hard to think through our lives and Maybe it's work to sing and to understand what's going on and understanding like what's being sung and what are people doing. And it's work. The problem is this, that we are made to work and we know it, but we wrongly invest all our work into our job. Maybe you never thought about that before. Maybe you've just made that distinction. Very firm. Work, play, family, hobbies, friends, spiritual life. One way to combat this, to combat wrongly investing all work into our job, is to do, frankly, a better job of of going out of our way, friends, to commend individuals who choose to take their work to other spheres of life. Especially us men who who like to uh, grunt and talk about our exploits at work. All right, so I, I like sports, okay? There's no secret here. If you know me, uh, and I saw this week on the same ticker, same news ticker, that a star basketball player in the playoffs was choosing to miss an important game in order to be with his wife who was going into labor. Same ticker, a golfer at the height of his career choosing to withdraw from an important tournament, getting appearance money from sponsors. The pressure to be a part of that tournament from, you know, as his popularity exploded. He chose to withdraw to, quote, spend more time with his family and then a a coach taking a prominent job but only if his kids could be around where he worked around the court where he worked same ticker we need to go out of our way to applaud that kind of work that's work for each of those persons that is additional work for them you see that we got to applaud it We need to go out of our way to applaud this kind of work. To say, man, that is cool. This encourages me. The fact that you went out of your way to work in that way for the church, for your family, for your spouse, for others in need outside of your job, that encourages me. Can I share that with somebody else? we got to go out of our way to do that. Who else is going to? Yeah, people will pay lip service to it. 
People will say it publicly for charity events. But who really says, man, that is awesome. I want to tell you, serving your spouse, going home for the day to do that, awesome. It might be choosing to take 45 minutes off once a week to serve at-risk kids at Georgetown Primary. It might be leaving work early, even during busy times, to make your community group where your gifts are needed, where your encouragement might be needed. We're made to work. So, Paul starts off with this about work. He says in verse 22, Obey in everything your earthly masters. Alright, so that's how he starts out. Obey in everything your earthly masters. Your bosses, essentially. But there's a difference between respectfully doing whatever your boss asks and working for him. If you hear nothing else, hear this this morning. This sermon in a nutshell. Do what your boss says, but work for the boss of bosses. That's what we see here with Paul saying. The main tenor of what we see Paul saying in verse 22, work with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart there literally means singleness of heart. Work for the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. But wait a minute, I thought he said to obey your earthly masters, your bosses, but no, you, but you can work for the Lord. Do that work for God. Verse 24, you are serving in your work the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? You can still humbly and respectfully do what you're told, yet not work for a human. In fact, you shouldn't. Let me tell you what happens when you work for humans. Paul rattles it off right here, actually. He rattles off the description pretty well. First of all, this is what happens when you work for human beings. One, your work becomes eye candy. Right? Paul says, do not work so as to give eye service. Eye candy, right? Candy's great. I love the nougaty centers, chocolate outside, the shiny wrappers. Right? As we love about candy, it's so attractive. It makes the taste buds happy. The problem is, as we know, it's never filling. It's true for your boss. It's true for you. But especially true for you. When you begin to focus on how your actions potentially affect your boss's perception of you and you need to ramp up your level of service because of him, when you need to do that, and, and what really makes him or her especially happy and the little ways you can do that and what happens is you start to lose your love for your work. The whole reason you may have gotten into it. You lose the pleasure in just doing it and doing it well. And then what happens secondly, you change. Paul says, become a people pleaser. Verse 22. Once you live to produce eye candy, man, it's nearly impossible to keep that from spreading to all areas of life. Right? You become a chameleon to everyone you're around to adapt and please any person in nearly any situation. Because that's the habit you build up at work, which is what? Probably two-thirds of your life. Which means, of course, your compass, the way you align and direct your life becomes other people. And you just become subject to their whims, to their preferences. Which is the third thing Paul mentions, that you, you kind of become subject to the whims of an unjust boss. Paul Speaks about unjust bosses here at the end, but every boss, every boss displays some degree of injustice because there is no perfect boss besides Jesus. 
But as you begin to change a little through eye service, through people pleasing, someone else's response becomes your compass that could lead you to do things you previously considered unethical. Well, you know, but he asked me to do that. It's just one thing. He may lead you to say things you previously considered off-putting and uncaring. But my boss says, you know, I want to kind of relate to him. He influences me, and I'm going to kind of have that same sort of attitude. What about when your boss suggests working 10 to 12 extra hours? That would really pay off. That would really play well for your advancement. Rarely do bosses actually tell you you have to do that. They suggest it would help your advancement. You know what I'm talking about. You're prone then to prioritize something you previously considered off-limits. You start to become subject to the whims of an unjust boss. What happens when you work for humans? Let me give you four reasons to work for, ultimately do your work for, the boss of bosses. Four reasons. I'm going to close with this. Working for the boss of bosses diffuses discontentment. Even bitterness that builds up towards your earthly boss. Think about it. How often are you asked in your job to do something or to go somewhere that lands somewhere on the spectrum between partially inefficient and just totally frivolous? Right? You got partially inefficient over here, and I do this differently to like, why the heck am I doing this? All right? How many times are you asked to do that in your job? Your boss may be here, so I understand if you don't raise your hand. But, but, and even those words, inefficient, frivolous, these are the types of characterizations we're forced, we feel forced to use. Because we're working for that person, and that leads to discontentment, it leads to bitterness even, because we're working for a person. However, when, when you flip that switch between what your boss asks of you and then saying, Lord, I'm going to do this for you. I am giving this to you. And the more you do that, the more you get in the habit of doing that. And the more God empowers you kind of to do that. When you flip that switch, it opens you up to all, all of a sudden to these potential resources for joy. Because you are released from potential discontent and bitterness to an opportunity to do something significant. Everything you do being eternally significant for the master of the universe, the boss of all bosses, for his pleasure. When you work heartily, as it says here, Colossians 3, 4, the Lord. When you know that anything done for the boss of bosses, then that kills its inefficiency. It kills its uselessness. It's like the woman that Jesus talks about who pours an alabaster jar of perfume on him. Her greatest riches. And people look around and say, oh, that's, that's inefficient, Jesus. That's useless. But when it's done for Jesus, it is precious to him. So, second reason to work for the boss of bosses, to receive the inheritance that doesn't perish. Right? Paul says here in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, by working for Him, you're going to receive the inheritance as your reward. You may object immediately, well, you know, as a Christian, I already have that inheritance, right? Boom! Got it. Because through trusting Jesus as my boss and the one who can ultimately forgive all my sin, I already have all this riches and honor of being an heir to the King. I have the inheritance. So I'm good. I already have all that stuff. Exactly. 
You have that as a gift. That's the whole idea. All of the Christian life is a response. It's all to be a response to what He has done and to Him. God has given. We are called to respond then by giving. God has worked. And if you truly understand that work, you'll want to work for Him. William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, uh, put it this way in his book, Christianity and the Social Order. He said, creation, the incarnation, meaning God becoming man and Jesus. Creation, incarnation, the resurrection. What do they all have in common? God with His hands in the dirt. God working with His hands in the dirt. Real tough work. At creation, God makes His prized creation, as we read earlier, out of dirt. The Greeks and Eastern religions say that God isn't physical, but we have this incarnation in Jesus, God in the flesh. At the resurrection, God redeems the physical by taking these bodies of dirt and then glorifying, not getting rid of our bodies, but then but glorifying our existing bodies using the dirt. God working with his hands and the dirt for us in our inheritance to make us, to save us, and to one day redeem us. When you get that about the God of the universe, you'll want to respond with work unto him. Doing it for him. The third reason to work for the boss of bosses helps rescue you from a life of misplaced motives. When it comes to work, one of the things we think will help us not to overwork, we keep thinking a balance will do it. Right? If we just balance things out, but we find ourselves, while trying to balance our life in different ways, not doing well <laughs> or wishing for more balance. Right? We're, we're thinking about our job when we're trying to balance or wishing for more balance. In other words, more rest, more me time, or more money to have more me time. Consider how prevalent, especially the motive of money is in our lives. First Timothy, Paul says this is First Timothy chapter six. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich want to pad the savings account, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Did you know that the Hebrew word for money, kasef, uh, comes from the verb meaning to desire, to, to languish after something. The very word in Hebrew conveys the idea that, that money is of itself a thirst that can never be slaked. Right? It's an insatiable aim. No one ever says they're going to work for money. Right? No one says I'm doing this for money. But, it, but it's couched in phrases like career opportunity oftentimes, job security, or I have to. Sorry, i got to do this. Or that's why you moved here, remember? But if you keep working for God, ironically, the balance comes because you're increasingly sensitive to a boss who, who will graciously, because he loves you, let you know the best time to take a break. He will let you know when it's time to walk away and let you know when doing your job becomes unhealthy, unclean, wrong. See that? 
as you work for him, he actually helps you balance your life. As you grow more sensitive to him, he'll let you know. Working for others, looking over our shoulder, the temptation to please people. I, I'm guessing it's, it's why a number of you, maybe here, have thought about, aspired to, or even currently, your own boss. Right, show of hands. Who here has thought about, wants to, or is their own boss? Raise your hand. That's true of you and your work. Okay? But that idea, that longing, doesn't actually fully ever work. It doesn't work. Which brings us to reason number four, to do all your work for the Lord. To finally hear what each of us ultimately wants to hear. Well done. We all want to hear this phrase, well done. A 2011 study of 282 graduate and postgraduate students from Ohio and New York, I know, kind of random, uh, that showed that a singular, one singular motivation towered above other motivations for doing well in work. It towered above booze, sex, more money. You know what it was? You know what that motivation was? Praise. I was shocked by this. Above all these other motivations to work hard, it was praise. Compliments, encouragements, affirmations were a far greater motivation for young people. But on second thought, it shouldn't surprise us because we're created that way. C.S. Lewis, upon finding the phrase in the Bible where Jesus, where we're going to get to be told in working for God one day, well done, good and faithful servant. When, when C.S. Lewis found that phrase, he had a simultaneous revelation. He says, with that, a good deal of what I've been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I had suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious as a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but a dog or a horse. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures. Nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the employee. The pleasure of a beast before a man, a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, and a creature before its creator. Everyone lives for the praise of one person. And the likelihood of it being a human boss is going to be slim, getting it from him or her. Everyone lives for the praise of one person. Close with this. Andrew Carnegie. You know who Andrew Carnegie is? Kind of a blast from the past there in that name. One of the most famous examples of someone who lived to be his own boss, 19th century millionaire, he worked and was famous for working for no one else's pleasure. July 27, 1881 was the happiest day of Andrew Carnegie's life. Carnegie had risen from the son of a Scottish weaver to the king of steel in America. He was called the Industrial Napoleon. Carnegie embodied credo of working for no one else's pleasure. In fact, he described business as a game of solitaire. His favorite line was Robert Burns's quote, thine own reproach alone do I fear. In other words, my own reproach alone do I fear. And he was a strong advocate. His life philosophy was social Darwinism, right? Survival of the fittest. You can't make it. It's your problem. A loner, his own boss. Doesn't do it for anyone else. Free of that stuff. The temptation of people pleasing. Yet on that fateful day in July 1881, 
greatest day of his life, Carnegie made the triumphal return into Dunfermline. Scottish person can help me later. Dunfermline, the city of his birth in the east of Scotland. He said, what, he said this, what Mecca is to the Muslim, what Jerusalem is to Christians, all of Dunfermline is to me. At four in the afternoon, the coach and four sauntered up the main avenue of that, sh- that town and he was greeted by banners and applause. Welcome home, favored son. The height of the day was Carnegie's bestowal of a new public library upon the city of his birth. Kind of curious, greatest day for a self-made millionaire. But the day was born in his heart years earlier. His family lived in a penury in Pittsburgh where he one day found his mother weeping in despair, in poverty. Cradling her hands in his, he urged his mom, Mom, don't weep. And he attempted to console her. He said, someday I'll be rich and we'll ride in a fine coach driven by four horses. You know what his mom said? Well, that will do no good over here if no one in Dunfermline can see us. It doesn't matter if no one in Dunfermline can see us. From that day forward, Carnegie had his goal, his audience to live for, his true boss. Everyone has a boss, friends, from whom they seek to hear, well done. Who is your boss? Lord, as a big subject to tackle, the idea of work. It is good to read your word and find that work is good and that we're called to do it. Most of our lives, we are called to work and it is good. And one day it will be perfect rest because there will be no more sin. Father, we have a choice. We can, when we work, work for our bosses. Work for human praise, work for the eye candy, being an eye candy, being a people pleaser. Father, we can flip that switch. We can submit to you and say, Lord, I'm going to do this for you. I might find it frustrating. I might find it inefficient. I might find it totally asinine. But if I do it for you, there's eternal significance to it. And I want to please you because one day I want to hear from you. Well done good and faithful servant. Thank you we can do all this because of the work you did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.